Carden. Blair. Buddy, episode, come on, man, 24. Is it 23? Yeah, man, that's so funny. It is. Because even though it's been kind of a joke, but honestly, I would have said 23 this time. Again, <laughs> I would have been off. You need to check your watch. I know. I think, I know. I think your watch is slow. I even prepped myself a little bit before, and I go, I know what it is this time, and I honestly would have said 23. Yeah. Uh, hey, buddy, you're a little under the weather. I know. I know. Tell me about it. I got this little uh, bug. You know what the great thing about having kids is? They just love to share um, everything. So, um, you know, uh, yeah. So a little, little Cass, bless him, came home with a a cold. And within, you know, 24 hours, I was um, feeling the exact same uh, symptoms. So I I feel great. Thank you for asking. My throat hurts a little bit. Are are you you feeling okay? I am feeling great. Thank you for asking. My throat hurts a little bit. Excuse me. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to power through. And if anything, this is the time for me to record my hit single because I feel like I got a really good rock and roll voice. I was thinking more DJ. Yeah, you, you oh. sound like the old school DJs. Yeah. Okay, you know. next up we've got the Beastie Boys with uh, another song after that by <laughs> Ice Cube. I was, uh, actually, I was thinking more of a DJ on like a, um, a love channel. Something like oh, that, you know, where you hey, look who's behind curtain number three. Yes, and he's exactly. got four questions for you. Watch out. Uh, he's, he, yeah, yeah, he'll hit you. He's got a little I was thinking more like, ass. I was thinking more like love music, but I, oh, oh, oh. I guess like you're Perry going to love game show. Yeah, oh, I yeah, write a like game the, show and yeah, contestant right. number three. Yes, this guy was punk. This guy, uh, well, hey, uh, episode 24, episode 24. Hey, we have a guess. guess what we do have a what? guess but before we get there we got i gotta hit you with some some stats on pondering underscore monkeys our instagram can you even guess we had um <sighs> annie on and she did a, a, a some kind of monster pr campaign or something she did she um, blasted it out there she did um, we were at 46 going into the episode which met our goal she set a goal of like 55 or something right can you yeah. guess our followers right now on Instagram. Uh, Well, I saw the analytics for the downloads and Annie's army, as we will fondly refer to them, um, had quite an impact. I'm going to say, I'm going to say we are at 65 followers. Oh man. So close. 91. Oh (laughs) yeah. Right. So again, are we officially influencers then? Uh, I think, well, I'm getting the kickbacks, like we said before. I'm, still, I'm getting the, the checks, and I'm eventually I'm going to split with you. I just got to make sure it's going to a good place. Is can all. we bestow that title upon us now? Are we officially influencers? Yeah, we are. Well, we are, we are influencers. Okay, that is impressive. But but yes. y- you think that's yes. impressive? What's yeah. even more impressive is our guest Tell tonight. Me. Yes. Who is it, Cardin? Uh, we have Dr. Zadra <laughs> back. The dream um, man. The dream Dr. man. Dream. Dr. Yep. Dream. Um, Tony, thank you so much for, for coming back and being with us. Well, I had a delightful time last time, so I'm uh, hopefully I won't regret it coming back. <laughs> uh, so, to be so, determined. Yeah, that's right. So, so, Tony, after you get done with the show, did you have any things that you wished you would have talked about that you didn't? Did you have any kind of like, oh, I should have said that kind of moments? Uh, I stopped having those moments many years ago. 
I think part of it is because I don't quite remember what I said and what I think I said <laughs> and not. <laughs> Yeah. And and part of it came uh, through teaching whereby, you know, I'd go, oh, I never told him that anecdote or it would have been greater. And then I tell myself, well, the students have no idea what I forgot to say or not. And so oh, it point. makes no difference. And yeah. So I stopped wow. worrying about that. Wow. That is uh, the very insightful. I wish I would have. Uh, assuming that. I remember correctly. <laughs> now there's, yeah, right. there's times the where I say, "Damn, maybe I shouldn't have said that." But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I had many of those experiences as a teacher, for sure. Yep, mm, probably shouldn't have said that one. Could have kept that one. Yeah, it's it's out of the and now and now everybody's got their cell phone on you, so you really oh, got to yeah. watch it. You got to yeah. watch out. Exactly. Well, it was a it was a great conversation, and uh, you you gave the offer to come back and kind of expand on that because, as we found out, there is a lot to dreams and talking about dreams. So um, we decided between the three of us, we would kind of focus on nightmares, you know, start the conversation with nightmares. Um, so, so Tony, let's get into this. Uh, why don't you kind of walk us through what is, what is the general description of nightmares? Uh, very well. Well, nightmares are um, highly disturbing dreams uh, that typically wake up the dreamer. And uh, once the person wakes up, they're usually well-oriented, time, space. Uh, they might have some distress over the imagery that they experienced. And contrary to popular belief, nightmares aren't just frightening dreams. Fear is certainly probably one of the most frequent emotions that people experience in their nightmares, but they can contain a broad variety of negative emotions from uh, grief, uh, anger, disgust, uh, yeah, extreme sadness. And uh, the themes also are really wide ranging. And so uh, in movies and other works of fiction, uh, often it's the chase and pursuit nightmare that is uh, depicted, but they can really cover uh, all kinds of situations from uh, interpersonal concerns, health-related concerns. Um, and some, if it's of interest, um, Really, when you when you read or you hear the description of the nightmare in and of itself, you probably go, well, that's not a nightmare. But the person within it was, you know, scared out of their wits, you know, with this mm -hmm. ominous feeling. So one example I like to give, and this person um, taking part in our study says this was the most horrific, frightening nightmare she had ever experienced. And it's just the description is simply her walking out into her backyard and it's uh, it's the fall, and all the leaves are gone from the trees. And in one of the trees, there's this big gray owl. And that's it. But she said it's like, you know, some scenes in the movies whereby with the music and the atmosphere, you know there's something horrific that's about to happen, this impending doom. And that was the feeling you know, those permeating her dream. And so sometimes you read these dream narratives and they go, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And the person maybe wasn't all that emotional in them. And sometimes you can read a dream narrative and go, well, that seems pretty banal. And the person was um, very emotionally perturbed or involved in the dream. So they're much more variable is my point than many people um, assume. Interesting. Do, do you, 
do you find, because you described many different kinds of nightmares that people can have, um, as far as the range of emotions and the emotions that they're actually feeling, do you find that people, for lack of a better word, get pigeonholed? Uh, so if somebody has one that it's uh, extreme, like terrifying, right? And, or as opposed to sadness, will they continue to have dreams that scare them? And uh, are people that have, are, you know, prone to sadness type nightmares, continue to have those kind of same types of nightmares? That, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think by and large, yes, that certainly can happen, but I wouldn't say over an entire lifetime, but over, you know, longish periods of our lives. Uh, and so some people can uh, have, again, really extreme frightening nightmares or even recurrent nightmares where uh, the themes are the same, you know, of chase and pursuit uh, or being late or those uh, horrific or um, disturbing exam dreams that some people have uh, where they're unprepared for an exam, uh, things of that nature. So these can come up, but often the emotions that we experience in our bad dreams and nightmares uh, tend to have some parallels with what we are experiencing during the daytime. And mm -hmm. since our emotional well-being and what uh, bothers us, what are our current concerns, preoccupations, tend to slowly shift um, throughout the decades, the kinds of emotions we experience in our nightmares and their contents also can show some parallel shifts. So, so Tony, going back to the example of the, of the, the woman uh, with the owl. So, you know, when you were talking in our original discussion, the first podcast, um, you know, we, the, we, we talked about the science of, of kind of deciphering these dreams to a certain extent, it, you know, is there valid or, or, have you seen in the research that that symbolism, you know, you can actually kind of explain some of this with the symbolism that happens in dreams? Or is it truly just this random, you know, brain is firing and, and you know, things happen with, with really no, um, you know, cause, I guess? The correct answer is E, none of the above. Really? So, <laughs> uh, so they are definitely not random, but when people think about symbolism, uh, often what they assume is that someone like me, who's, you know, I've been a dream and sleep researcher for most of my life. Um, mm -hmm. I have a data bank of close to 20,000 dreams um, that, you know, someone like this or someone with other kinds of training can listen to your dream and say, oh, wow, okay, this means this. And, you know, the monster chasing you signifies this. And that, I think, is where the symbolism goes wrong. I think that um, dreams, including nightmares, can certainly be psychologically meaningful. But for you to understand what it may mean or signify or why these elements are appearing in the person's dream, you need to know something about the dreamer. And I like the analogy of um, dreams are like works of art, and art lends itself to multiple meanings. And so no one would go to an artist and say, oh, I just looked at your artwork. And here, I'll tell you what it means. 
right? Mm-hmm. I can tell you what it means for me, how I makes me react, and the same thing for nightmares. And so, yes, you can draw uh, broad lines about, you know, if, if you have a nightmare where you're driving a vehicle and it's out of control, which is one fairly frequent theme that some people report. Well, again, you know, a vehicle is a very good metaphor for uh, driving, being control, out of control of your life, reaching your destination. And so something is impeding you for doing that. So that's that's very good. Um, and I give several examples of this in, in a book I that recently appeared that I co-wrote with uh, Bob Stickle called When Brain Stream. And so in there, I described someone who had this dream where they are uh, in their automobile with their girlfriend. They get stuck in a uh, snowstorm and he's going out and he's trying to push the vehicle out of the snow. Um, and this through exploration with the person, uh, we end up thinking, you know, again, might be a good representation at the time that he was feeling their relationship was going nowhere, which is what their car is doing. And not only that, he thought that in waking life, that he was the one putting the most effort in getting their relationship to move forth, uh, whereas he felt his girlfriend wasn't. And this gets translated, if you want, uh, in this disturbing dream by him going out and trying to push the car out of the Mm. snowbank and so on. So all this to say, yes, I think dreams can be psychologically meaningful in that uh, there are things of metaphors um, and symbolism at play, much like there is in artwork or even in the language. When we speak, we use a lot of metaphors, um, even without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that these linguistic features uh, also show up in our dreams. But to say X means Y and that this holds true for everyone, that's where I sort of get off the train. Sure. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I think it's really interesting that you bring up um, themes, um, and I don't think that's something that we've discussed before, but it's it's fascinating to me that there's, uh, out of so many people that can do so many different studies, are you finding that there are specific reoccurring themes that are, these are dream hot list, for example. These are dreams that many people have had and many people can relate to um, uh, what are some of those subject matters of those dreams? Uh, sure. So there is uh, that is a question that has been uh, studied, and it's true of what we call everyday dreams. You just ask people to keep a dream diary uh, for a few weeks at a time, or you have people come into the sleep lab, and you record several of their dreams, and you're looking what kind of themes show up in people's dreams. We've also done it on a sample of about 10,000 dreams from almost uh, 700 adults, also looking at their nightmares. And certainly there's... Um, uh, a set of thematic contents that reoccur. So for instance, if we return to nightmares, uh, there's of course, chase and pursuit. There's being unprepared for an examination. There's uh, health concerns, um, either for yourself or dreaming that you've lost uh, someone dear to you. Uh, There can be calamities, uh, world wars. So, you know, the, these mega destructions of the earth and society kind of uh, nightmares or natural catastrophes, tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, firestorms, uh, infestations of with uh, insects, spiders, things of that nature. Um, 
many themes related to interpersonal relations, be it with family members, parents, children, siblings, co-workers, exes, and so on. So there are these themes that, that we instance we find in um, people's bad dreams and nightmares. And there are also what are known as typical dreams. And typical dreams are those uh, which many people um have experienced at least once in their lifetime. So they're not recurrent necessarily, but if you, you know, ask a thousand people, a good proportion of them will say, yes, I've already had that once. Uh, and so again, chasing pursuit, of course, is in there, but like flying dreams is another one. Um, there's, you know, uh, finding a treasure. Uh, there is being lost, being unprepared for an exam, losing one's teeth. There is, in fact, a whole list of these that we know many people tend to report. And this is also true cross-culturally, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And somewhere, maybe not all that surprising, um, because when you look at different myths, uh, different stories, mythological stories, fairy tales, the same themes tend to come up across time, that is, across generations and across different societies. And, you know, the, the good versus evil, the prodigal son and, and so on, right. these, are, these are all things that speak to us, and that's why we tell stories that involve these themes. And it's then not surprising that the language of dreams can also represent these sort of universal or very common thematic contents. Um, not that far away from what Carl Jung called the, or the idea he put forth of a collective unconscious mm -hmm. that is maybe a substrate of people's unconsciousness, which is shared by all members of a given species. Hmm. That's, I've never, I've never heard of the, the losing all your teeth dream that's the first time i've ever heard that yeah it's either they're losing their teeth or they're talking and then their teeth start um, becoming loose and then they're starting to accumulate in their mouths and um yes over about a third of the general population will report having had wow, such a dream at least really? at one point in their life what one thing that's interesting is that uh, you almost never uh, see this reported by children who are in fact those who in waking life are losing their teeth. Are actually losing up. Their teeth. Yes. Wow, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. Wow. Oh, but again, if you think of losing your teeth and why you might dream that, well, you know, it, it's how people perceive you are, you know, are, sure. are, are as, mm. you know, it could be in terms of they're perceiving you in terms of beauty, but also are you competent? Um, are you letting them down? Uh, maybe it has something to do with how you are speaking or your fear of speaking, yeah. how you're coming across. Are people seeing uh, you in the way that you aren't? I mean, again, it's a, it's a nice metaphor uh, for a range of these kinds of current concerns or preoccupations and something that we've all have experienced you know we've all lost some right. teeth as we are growing up mm -hmm. right. right right you know and maybe there's a dream tooth fairy that can come and you know <laughs> yeah. 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 leave yeah. us a bitcoin under yeah. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so so tony i have a question now um what is the, now are night terrors and nightmares the same thing and if not what are the difference um, another excellent question. Uh, there are two very different things, but that are often confused. And so 
the first thing is that uh, night terrors are what's called really now sleep terrors because they can occur during naps as well, not just at nighttime. Uh, they tend to occur in the first third of the night where we have more what's known as slow wave sleep or deep sleep, whereas nightmares tend to occur in the last third of the sleep period because they tend to arise out of what is known as REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, the stage sleep most closely associated with vivid, bizarre, and emotionally involved dreaming. Mm. I mentioned at the outset, when someone wakes up from a nightmare, they're usually relieved. They know that they're in their bedroom and so on, that the experience they just had um, was a dream. When people experience sleep terrors, a, first of all, there's usually these horrific vocalizations. People are often, they often scream, sit up in bed in an extreme panic. Uh, when this occurs in children, for instance, they're utterly unconsolable. If you pick up a child who's having a sleep terror, you know, their eyes may be open, but it's like they're looking right through you. And even in adults, however, other than maybe a fixed image, I was drowning um, or I was being buried alive or there was a poisonous gas in the room, there's no long, elaborate dream narrative like what you find in nightmares. In nightmares, a person will be able to say, oh, I was walking through a forest and then I heard a twig crack and then I turned around and this wolf mm. was there. I mean, they can tell you this long story that sort of evolves over time. Uh, that's absent from sleep terrors. And also most people who have sleep terrors, uh, true of children and most adults, they're typically amnesic for the episode. That is when they will wake up in the morning, uh, they will have no memory or just a vague memory of having had a sleep terror. Whereas people who have nightmares tend to remember them um, even later on Whoa, during the day. Really? Mm, so is that because of the different stage in sleep that they were in when they had the occurrence? Uh, yes. When the brain is transitioning from REM sleep to wakefulness, you have less of what it's called sleep inertia, or it's also called sleep drunkenness, which is mm -hmm. the, the, the brain tries, you know, it's very hard to switch from uh, sleep to wakefulness immediately. And so you have this sort of lingering fog. Uh, REM sleep, your brain is quite active and in many ways similar to wakefulness. So that transition is much more natural. When you're in deep sleep and, you know, an alarm wakes you up or something else wakes you up, that's when you really feel uh, really crappy and you have this thick brain fog and it's hard for you to get going and it's probably also a stage where it's very hard for you to consolidate anything that was being told to you or that you were experiencing uh, yeah. right at that moment and also mm -hmm. most people adults and children after their sleep terrors they just return to bed I, even if you don't do anything with them, they will usually just sit back and, and go back to bed. Mm. Whereas, again, the people with the nightmares will be, but, uh, you know, they'll be well oriented and tell you what was going on and so on. Uh, whereas the adults or especially the children, they will have uh, really nothing to relate. And so we think that sleep terrors is more an autonomic system reaction. Your, your, your flight or fight system kind of goes. Uh, on in a berserk way, really uh, all of a sudden. And so even in the sleep lab, we've recorded 
uh, patients and you're looking at their heart rate, sleep terror patients, and uh, during an episode, their heart rate might be 54, 55, 54, 55, and within 10 seconds, that is when the episode starts and they let out this blood-curdling scream and sit up in bed, their heart rate can shoot up to like 160, 170. And that kind of acceleration is almost impossible to duplicate in wakefulness. Wow. And so it's really your system kind of just goes wild very suddenly. Do you think there's like an adrenaline release to cause that? Um, We don't quite know what causes that other than it's, you know, like I said, a a free game that's happening um, in the brain. Mm -hmm. We know that genetics are involved. Many people who have sleep terrors also have um, another sleep disorder that's related to slow wave sleep or to deep sleep, and that is sleepwalking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, most people who have sleepwalking also have a history of uh, sleep terrors, or they can have two. They can have an episode that starts off as a sleep terror, and then they calm down, and then they engage in uh, sleepwalking behaviors. Uh, But again, I think the important thing is all these phenomena that we're discussing that are related to sleep terrors are very different um, Mm. than what we call uh, nightmares. Mm. And so they're different in what stage of sleep they occur, why they occur, uh, and also how we try to treat them. Um, I'm I'm glad you brought up the, cause I was, I was thinking, I know I have a family member whose um, son, young son has night terrors and they're, I, I wouldn't say at a loss, but they've received a lot of different information and the kind of sleepwalking thing, the, I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily a myth or there's truth to this, but you know, you constantly hear that refrain that you know you don't wake anybody up that's having a night terror, or you don't try to wake anybody up that's sleepwalking. Is there any is there any truth to that, or any reason behind that? Um, well, that's a tricky question because saying you shouldn't wake them up presumes that they are asleep. And mm. we know by um, some brain imaging study and some what's called EG functional connectivity studies, some of which from our lab, which is basically a fancy word to say what areas of the brain are talking to what other areas right before these episodes are, take place or during them. We know that their brains are actually in a state whereby some areas are fully asleep and some of them are partially awake. So. Mm. Um, they're in sort of this unusual state of consciousness. The idea isn't so much that you should not wake them up, but that you shouldn't um, try to be aggressive with them or belittle them or contradict them uh, because they usually, especially adults, usually believe that there's something really urgent going on, an immediate danger that you know everyone needs to flee. Uh, And so that's why they're trying to get out of the house during agitated sleepwalking, for instance. For sleep terrors or even sleepwalking in children, usually you can take them, you know, for sleepwalking in kids, you usually take them by the hand and say, uh, you know, look, Sarah, you know, there's really nothing wrong. Why don't you just come back with me? We'll go back to bed. And usually they follow you um, without a problem. Uh, In terms of also some interventions, one of the easiest interventions and most effective with children who have either sleepwalking or sleep terrors is to ask the parents to keep track of how long after they your child goes to bed do, do they tend to have these episodes and usually it's always within about an hour and a half 
after going to sleep or so. Again, because they arise out of deep sleep and children quickly fall into the stage of uh, slow wave sleep within about an hour, an hour and a half after falling asleep. And the idea is once you have a, you know, the child, let's say, usually goes to bed at, let's say, eight o'clock or nine o'clock and an hour and a half later, they tend to have their episode. What you, what you instruct the parents to do is to go and wake up the child about 15, 20 minutes prior to the time where they usually have their episodes. And you need to really wake them up. Uh, that is, they need to be fully awake. Um, and you do this every night. And it's sort of a pain. But again, being woken up by, you know, a child that's screaming and unconsolable isn't all that enjoyable either. And yeah. so this technique we just called anticipatory awakenings because you awaken them prior to when they should awaken on their own, um, really works well. And we're not quite sure why it works, but one idea is we think that these episodes that they have occur once there's a sufficient buildup of this slow-wave sleep. So it becomes almost too much slow-wave sleep got accumulated, and then the brain tries to snap out of it and get, get stuck in this nasty state. And so... By waking them up, you sort of break this buildup of slow wave sleep. And then, you know, uh, you keep them awake for, you know, five minutes or so, let them go back to bed. Uh, and usually they uh, stop having episodes or at least uh, much less frequent. And so this is much better, I believe, than any pharmacological treatments or other approaches. And like I said, tends to work uh, very well in children. That's incredible. That is, that's really fascinating. Um, definitely, I would agree. And I think that uh, uh, the listeners, and they know who they are, that would, oh, they're here and are, are, are in agreement. It would much better to wake them up than to be woken up by them um, having a night terror. An active night terror. And, and usually the parents are, are, are up by then because their kids usually, you know, at a young age go to bed, you know, at least an hour and a half before the oh, parents right, do. Oh, right, right. Yeah. It could so be it's usually no, it's usually it. not much of a bother. So, you know, Cardin, we when we talked with uh, Tony the first time, you said, uh, or did you say you had nightmares? Uh, I, I mean, I have, but as of recent, I haven't had a lot of them. I mean, when I do have nightmares, they're pretty um, distinct in, in the, the theme of what's going to happen. Um, but it doesn't happen frequently, at least not uh, lately. Yeah, and see, I, I can't recall... Uh, having one. So, so Tony, how common, uh, I guess you'd say in the general public, how common are nightmares? Well, nightmares are experienced by about problematic nightmares, let's say by about 5% of the general adult population. So these are nightmares that are frequency of about one a week um, or more, and that usually generate a fair degree of distress. And this is all kinds of nightmares. So they can be recurrent nightmares or what are called idiopathic nightmares, which are really just, again, a fancy word that means we don't know what causes them. And so instead of saying, you know, a nightmare without a cause, it's much cooler to say idiopathic nightmares. Yeah, that is cooler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, or they can be uh, trauma-related nightmares or stress-related nightmares. So about 5% of the general population. Um, so it's, it's quite a bit. Uh, unfortunately, most people who have frequent disturbing nightmares 
will not consult for them because they are under the impression that there's nothing that can be done or that the only thing that could be done is, well, they're going to send me to see a, a psychiatrist or someone and they're going to want to find out what happened in my early childhood and what's causing the nightmares. Whereas we have very effective treatments directly targeting nightmares that work in about 80% of people. And most of these only take a few sessions where, and then the people who have nightmares uh, are given tools to practice at home. And this works very well in, in the case of, and I can describe very briefly what's involved. And in the case of trauma-related nightmares, such as those related to post-traumatic stress disorder and PTSD patients, uh, there are also some of these psychological interventions directly targeting nightmares that work well, uh, but there are also uh, pharmacological approaches. Prazosin is uh, the number one line uh, that's prescribed for this, especially in uh, military personnel, uh, that tends to normalize this abnormal neurochemical imbalance in the sleeping brain that comes with PTSD. There's uh, way too much noradrenaline in the brain in the sleep than there should be, comes diminish this, and this also can uh, improve nightmares. For people who have what's known as idiopathic nightmares or nightmares related to stress, or they don't know why they have nightmares, they just had them for a very long time, or some of them have them since they are kids, um, the technique that works best and that is the most recommended by various medical associations and um, sleep professionals is called nightmare rescriptive, uh, rescripting or nightmare rehearsal therapy. And in essence, what is involved is telling the person, whenever you have a nightmare, what I want you to do is reimagine the nightmare while you are awake. Take five, 10 minutes during the daytime, reimagine the nightmare, changing whatever feels right to you. And this is important, the whatever feels right to you, because you're not imposing change the ending, make it a triumphant, uh, you know, scenario. And and so some people might just change the beginning. Some people will change the whole thing. Um, some people will change the dream by having a character appear and help them out. Uh, some of them will give it a triumphant ending. And some people might change something trivial, like the color of a wall. But just this re-scripting and reimagining this altered version of the nightmare in and of itself tends to be very therapeutically useful. Mm -hmm. And this technique, which can be um, uh, explained and taught individually or in groups, and there's also some studies where even the instructions uh, were sent via internet or mail, um, works surprisingly well um, in about 80% of patients, and it works well with recurrent nightmares, idiopathic nightmares, trauma-related nightmares. Um, and so it's always sort of saddens me to hear of these cases of people who have been suffering from their nightmares for a very long time uh, when we do have these highly effective tools uh, that are you know, mm -hmm. relatively simple to try that have a good chance of, mm -hmm. if not making their nightmares disappear, at least making them a lot less intense and frequent. Wow. And I, I know so much of this is kind of, you know, dealing with the brain, there's lots of unknowns and things. So in, in this specific instance, why, why do you think that that kind of 
retelling or rehearsing um, the nightmare has such um, great results? Um, no one really knows. And so I'm part of those people who really don't know, even though we've tried to study this. But um, we do have a, a few ideas why it works. First of all, you know, the, the nightmares are just like all dreams. They're private, subjective experiences. And the reason most people think there's nothing you can do about uh, nightmares is because, well, they happen while you are sleeping. What kind of defense do you have? So some of them, the only thing they can think of is, well, I'm going to try not to sleep. Or if they wake up from a nightmare, they will try not to go back to sleep for fear of continuing their nightmare. So it's something that happens to you in your sleep. So just being told that, no, no, there is something you can do in wakefulness that might have an impact already changes their view of their experience of nightmares. Mm. We also think there is something therapeutic by taking this private subjective experience and putting it outside of yourself. In, in the early versions of imagery rehearsal therapy, people were asked to write down an altered version of their dream, of their nightmare. In children, uh, by the way, uh, this technique has been adapted, so they do it through drawings, uh, and it works very well in children as well. But there's something probably also empowering about taking these experiences that happen to you while you're asleep and putting them outside of you in writing or in your thoughts while you are awake. And it's curious that in some uh, indigenous cultures already uh, centuries ago, uh, some of the techniques described in these uh, older texts for treating nightmares were, for instance, to tell the dream to uh, to a rock and then take the rock and throw it in the river. And again, it's it's taking something that, mm -hmm. that is inside and putting it outside and getting rid of it. So uh, there's uh, different ideas. We also think that whatever people rehearse, uh, there's also, by the way, by giving them control, what do you want to change? It's also empowering because they are the ones deciding. They are the ones in control about, I'm going to change this, or I'm going to imagine this, or I'm going to make Paul appear and he's going to help me out, or I'm going to take this action and this will happen. And so there's something I think empowering about regaining control over an imaginal process over which usually we do not have control, that is, when the nightmare is actually happening. So there's probably multiple psychological factors. When these techniques are uh, taught in groups, maybe there's a group effect as well. Uh, the fact that, you know, usually these techniques are taught by a psychologist or other sleep specialists, um, A, already, one thing that is different is that their complaint about nightmares is taken seriously and someone is offering a concrete solution. So that too is a different attitude about there is something that can be done and this has been studied and here's sort of a state-of-the-art technique that I can use to help my, myself do this. And then mm. these techniques they practice on their own at home. Mm. Interesting. That just uh, reminds me so much of uh, a way to you know, overcome fears and waking life of, of the same kind of um, 
overcoming some of the irrational fears that you you feel by you know if i'm terrified of clowns then i you know <laughs> approach clowns you know what i'm saying like kind of yeah, not, i wouldn't school. say inundate yourself yeah but you would do things that would that would it, it almost seems like that that same kind of technique so that's really yeah, fascinating. A, a form of uh, exposure therapy but yes, in a, exactly in a, in a, in a controlled uh, in a controlled fashion yeah exactly yeah you 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 buy you invest in the velveteen clown pictures yeah exactly yeah exactly the, the nicely done so so tony i have a question then um you know knowing that you're saying basically five percent of the population experiences these on a, a fairly regular basis at what point um do you encourage people to actually get help and what's the you know what's the path like that is it something you start with your your general um, physician or do you immediately go to you know a psychologist I mean what do you what do you recommend uh, that's a minefield there um, mm. yeah well uh, first of all um, some people have a lot of nightmares and like them so I'll start with that um, like the, they, they, they like the um, strong emotional visceral reaction so of course they're, they're petrified during the nightmare but they find it exciting it's like a you know a roller coaster ride you know they wake wow. up and they go wow that was really intense and so they're not necessarily bothered by them and so there are there are minority but there's people who sort of um, um i wouldn't say enjoy them but that you know, the idea of seeking help for nightmares doesn't cross their mind because there's no distress. So I would say it's not so much a question of frequency. How often do you have them? But are they distressing experiences? Are they something that is bothering you? Okay. Uh, right. Does it interfere with the quality of your sleep? I mentioned before, many people with frequent nightmares also have comorbid insomnia, but the insomnia is due to the nightmares or due mm. to their behaviors of trying to avoiding nightmares. So I think beyond the question of frequency, clinically, usually it's an arbitrary line. People mention, you know, once a week or more. Um, but again, also the frequencies of nightmares can vary. You can go through a period of your life, you know, of a few months where you're having them, you know, multiple times a week and then have a period of a month where maybe you only had two or and again the intensity of the emotions might uh, vary across time so it's really are they causing you distress are you concerned about them the second part of your question is you know how you go about it i think also really varies on uh, where you live what services are possible and so uh, these techniques that I mentioned, imagery rehearsal therapy or for trauma-related nightmares, prazosin, even though they're well-known in the sleep community um, and certainly among uh, nightmare researchers and clinicians, for instance, uh, they're not that well-known outside of these spheres. And so you might go see a psychologist who's unaware of this and whose understanding of nightmares is, well, if you have nightmares, it's because, you know, X, Y, Z must have happened to you uh, when mm -hmm. you were a kid. And mm -hmm. so let's go see. And then once we resolve that, the nightmares will disappear. Now, the nightmares may very well do be due to some kind of adversity that you've had, but not necessarily. And we have no evidence that even if you address these um, earlier issues, that the nightmares disappear. In fact, there's many 
convincing data pointing that they persist across time. And sort of like you come and see me because you have a fear in elevators. And then we find out that you, you know, we construct a story that tells us, well, I think uh, you're afraid of elevators because of this, you know, fearful clown exposure you had when you were two. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's all fine and good. But can you take the elevator today? No. Right. right. And so we could probably do a therapy where we get you to take the elevator without delving into, you know, this horrific clown experience of when you were two years old. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so people might be well-intentioned, but the the approaches they take may not be effective for treating nightmares. And most people Mm. might not have the energy. They don't want to revisit things, or they might be convinced that there is nothing to revisit. Um, They Mm. just want to do something about their nightmares. And so that's why I speak about these therapies, which are called uh, direct psychological therapies for nightmares. Their focus mm. is the nightmares, and they can be treated not as a secondary problem underlying something else, but as a primary sleep disorder. Mm. And to the extent that you do that and they feel better and they are sleeping better, that also gives them more energy if they so desire to uh, address other issues in their lives, whether it's stress management or uh, childhood memories or whatever other um, concerns that might be related to problems of uh, anxiety, depression, and so on. Which actually could be the root of the nightmares. Uh, very, It could very well be. Uh, but what we know is that nightmares have multiple potential roots, and it's quite hard to, uh, without a thorough um, clinical investigation to sort of sure. determine which one it is. And so some people default that, you know, early childhood experiences, but in some cases it's due to medication. It could oh, be yeah. hormonal unbalances. Yeah. Uh, it can just be everyday uh, stressors. Um, there's really, it, sometimes it's related to a sleep habit. Sometimes it's related to other sleep disorder so they the nightmares can occur for a variety of reasons and there's also some people people think that nightmares uh might be something that is useful and adaptive uh mm. in and of themselves so they, again i really it really comes down to uh like like many other problems you know what are people seeking clinically in terms of help for what why mm-hmm. over what time period and what kind of energy uh, do they have to dedicate to this mm-hmm. i i might want to just mention there's also some labs and because this is really cool investigating the use of uh, technologies what's known as dream engineering to try to treat nightmares so for instance we know that when people are sleeping in in-rim sleep if you present them um, with a pleasant odor, say of a rose, they are much more likely to have a positively toned dream, not necessarily about roses, than if you present them with um, a negative sense, sort of like rotten eggs, for instance, <laughs> even though they have no memory wow. of these smells. That's so incredible. these smells can actually modulate the emotions. And so uh, some people are exploring uh, these kinds of techniques. Wow. There's actually an app that's been approved in the United States um, for, you know, nightmares, especially uh, in relation to PTSD, where this uh, device monitors your heart rate, respiration rate uh, during the nighttime. And once they achieve a certain threshold, the thing vibrates to wake you up out of your nightmare. And 
the, the power I come back, the power of smells is really um, um, quite fascinating. So, for instance, there's a, an, a to me, a mind-boggling study uh, in which smokers were brought into a sleep laboratory and uh, they were just, they, they were told they were basically control subjects for another study. And little did they know that when they were asleep, they were presented with the smell of a cigarette and the smell of uh, either rotten eggs or um, uh, rotting fish. And they have no memory of this pairing that occurred uh, in their sleep. But on average, these people smoked 30% less in the week that followed. And this wow. is just what, and if you do this pairing during wakefulness, if during wakefulness you pair, you know, cigarette smoke with rotten fish, you don't observe these effects. So there's something very powerful going on in how our brain, sleeping brains, are incorporating uh, these olfactory stimuli, making sense of them, what is linking them. But what to me is uh, amazing is that these people have no recollection of this happen, yet you know, diminish their smoking behaviors right. by 30%. Substantially. Now, how so, far down the, the rabbit hole do you think that'll go, Tony? I mean, as far as, I mean, I, I just think the concept of dream engineering in general is fascinating. Um, but I mean, how are, are there other start uh, studies that are kind of pushing the limits of this kind of quote unquote dream engineering? Uh, there, there's a whole group of uh, researchers who, um, are exploring various facets of this um, of what's known as dream engineering to improve people's well-being, to treat nightmares, um, uh, to help for addictions is another possibility, as I just alluded to. The problem is that, like in many things, it could also be used by you know people with not as good intentions. Yeah. Um, and so I'm reminded that, you know, prior to the Super Bowl, uh, Coors and Molson's had this uh, big publicity event where they were encouraging people to uh, incubate uh, images. I incubate is, a, is again, a, a term that just, you know, immerse yourself in these images in the hope that they might influence your dreams about. And so they had to watch this scene of uh, mountains and, you know, pure streams and so on. That's often you've seen the ads for Coors Beer. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And this was paired with music. And then the music would play in the background while you slept. And the idea was that maybe you would dream about having a really nice coarse beer in this setting again with the hope that uh, you know during the super bowl you'd want to have a coarse beer oh, nice. now, yeah, now right. many people found this really cool you know i was going oh my gosh uh many of us in the field were well did not put it that way yeah again, yeah because we saw this uh taking a step in a a potentially frightening direction to the extent that I believe it's about 40 million Americans have a device uh, like Alexa or a Google, something uh, in their bedrooms. Mm. You could very well uh, see in the not too distant future some of these technologies Absolutely. being used to market things. And if wow. you think back to the example I gave you before of the you know factory pairings for which we have no recall in the morning, uh, which which you know, modify our behaviors. Um, 
if you're clever enough, you could divide, you could think up of ways of doing this for marketing. And, you know, when you drive down a highway, you can see all these ads for all kinds of things, you know, uh, these billboards. But do you want this kind of advertisement to also be occurring in your sleep, unbeknownst to you, or even in your dreams? Mm -hmm. um, and so this, to some, you know, sort of a far-fetched question, but to many of us in the field, we really think that we should start thinking about this uh, now proactively um, before they become, these technologies become a reality yeah. uh, yeah. that can be marketed. That, well, that, absolutely. Uh, that just reminds me of a, a scene right out of um, Brave New World, right? That's what they're doing at the very beginning is they're playing these recorded tracks to children as they're sleeping to make them prone to pick a yeah. certain uh, profession in their life. So it is, it's, you know, it's dystopian almost. It is, that is a terrifying thought for sure. And, and, and it's a fine line because, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, if this company came to see me and said, you know, Tony, uh, you could try this product and you can have like Spider-Man like dreams tonight. You know, I'd go, Hey, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll right. let, let me try that. Um, so I, I, you know, again, it has potential. It definitely has potential um, to augment or help people's well-being. Uh, but again, it also has, you know, potential for many misuses and, the line dividing this, but I think, you know, conformed, informed consent, what exactly are you signing up for? Um, and again, my main fear is eventually these kinds of technologies being used without our awareness of either how they are used, what we are exposed to, and how it influences our behaviors. Terrifying. Well, I, I see it as subliminal manipulation. I mean, basically. Uh, absolutely. That, and I, I think it's very there scary. are laws against subliminal uh, advertising. And yeah, so, right, right. But, you know, a that third of our lives um, are, you know, unguarded as we speak. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I'm definitely getting, uh, I don't have an Alexa in there, but it almost makes me not even want to sleep with my phone charging next to me. Yeah. You're, you're being, you're being listened to that. You know, you hear people all the time talk about, they will discuss something randomly and all of a sudden you're getting ads for if it's a product or something, all of a sudden on your phone, you're starting to get advertisements for that product that you randomly you know mentioned and so no i i think there's a certain degree of that already going on um i don't, I don't know that yeah I, I don't have one in our bedroom for sure um no that's terrifying but, yeah ugh. I, do, I do uh so last time we talked we talked a lot about lucid dreaming and yeah uh, i i want to, to know is there any crossover in lucid dreaming and nightmares um, another uh, great question, and yes, there is on, on many fronts. So uh, lucid dreams in many respects are similar to nightmares because they are exceptionally vivid dream experiences. Uh, they are often emotionally engaging, uh, just that the emotions tend to be highly positive. Um, and so they're very similar to nightmares, just on the other end of the spectrum. Now, one thing that is fascinating is that many uh, people who have frequent nightmares also have lucid dreams. 
And so we think that there's a subgroup of the population who is just for whatever reasons, be them neurochemical, genetics, or others, predisposed to having very emotionally intense dreams that they recall. And so these can take the forms of nightmares or take the form of lucid dreams. There are also um, researchers and clinicians who try to use lucid dreams or teach lucid dreaming to treat nightmares. Um, and that can also be effective for some people, though it tends to be much more um, complicated uh, than learning a technique like imagery rehearsal therapy, because not everyone is able to learn to have lucid dreams, let alone become lucid in your nightmare, and then to correctly execute um, whatever you had rehearsed to do in your nightmare. Mm -hmm. But yes, there are these, these parallels and the therapeutic uses of lucid dreaming, including for nightmares is something that has been uh, actively uh, studied. Mm. I don't know if we, I don't recall if we had discussed this um, last time, but uh, lucid dreams are studied in the lab and they are quite unique in the sense that you can have a lucid dreamer tell them when you become aware that you're dreaming, I want you in the dream to move your eyes extreme left, right, left, right. And these eye movements that they do in their dreams get picked up by electrodes that monitor their real eye movements in the sleep lab. So we know already from really multiple dozens of studies in, in many labs across the world that lucid dreamers can send these signals, literally if you want, from inside their dream to the experimenters in the lab, which is really quite also um, mind-bending. And then what they do is they do this first signal and then they carry out a predetermined activity, singing, counting, uh, doing squats, whatever. And when they are done, they send signal two. And so the researchers know that between signal one and signal two, the person who's asleep in the lab in REM sleep was singing or counting. Mm -hmm. And so now you know exactly where to look in the EG or in the heart rate recordings or in muscle activity, uh, respiration rate, and so on. What's going on in the brain and the body when the person sings in their dreams or counts in their dreams or swims in their dreams? Now, uh, just about a month ago, another study came out showing that two-way communication with lucid dreamers is possible. That is, wow. not only can lucid dreamers communicate with the outside world, which we've known basically since the late 70s, early 80s, though, um, interest in this kind of use of lucid dreaming or to study the dreaming brain really only took off, uh, I'd say, in the last 15 years or so. But now it's also possible to have to use external stimuli that get incorporated into the dream of the lucid dreamer, and they are used to send instructions to them. And so it's sort of a proof. Right now, it's very basic things, but it's a proof mm -hmm. of concept that two-way communication between someone in the uh, you know re real or waking world in a sleep lab uh, can have a two-way communication with someone who is in REM sleep, uh, having a lucid dream. And so uh, some of the basic things done is they'd be able to signal, for instance, ask a question like, um, you know, what is six minus four? 
And the lucid dreamer was able to understand this question and then do two eye movements to answer two. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's basic yeah. things. But again, it's proof of concept that these things um, are possible. And this was studied in multiple laboratories um, in um, different countries uh, in this one paper that came out, like I said, about a month ago or so. That so there's all these incredible. wow yeah there's all these exciting uh fascinating uh studies on uh dreaming and REM sleep and brain science uh for the sleeping brain uh that are coming out that touches on nightmares and other dream related disorders and just trying to get a better grasp of what is going on where and how in the brain when we dream and why is this important wow before now we mess with it yeah, before yeah. we actually start doing the the messaging. Now, in that two-way communication, what um, when the person wakes up that was dreaming, how do they describe that experience? Do they say that they heard somebody asking them that question? Oh, yeah, that too is quite fascinating. So sometimes uh, in the dream, it gets incorporated, like this one person described it as like the voice of God. It was like oh. six oh. minus <laughs> four, you know. Uh, yeah, one person fly. was in their lucid dream, you know, there was a TV nearby, and then the sound came out of the television, right? There's this sort of disembodied wow. voice. Um, but you can also communicate with them, yeah, with, with sounds, but it, it all needs to be finely calibrated because, you know, a bit too loud, you wake them up, not loud enough, you know, they don't hear it. Uh, and it's really only a minority of trials that worked. Um, so in many cases, it doesn't work, but you can use other modalities. So uh, you can flash lights over the closed eyelids of the person. And then the person in their lucid dream uh, will notice, for instance, a car driving by with the red lights in the back, you know, blinking or, um, you know, the sun passing through uh, different branches and trees. So it's like a strobe effect. And so it's their cues that, you know, someone is trying to communicate with them from the outside world. Um, if you administer little electrical shocks to the wrists of the person, you know, so the real wrists in the lab, of course, they might get incorporated. And so, you know, uh, a shock to the right wrist uh, might, you know, symbolize this letter or this number and the left wrist another. And so there's one project of trying to develop a sort of Morse code, if you want, with these kinds of stimuli, which the person in the lucid dream could try to decipher more complex questions. Wow, that's uh, incredible. But, but it's very hard for the lucid dreamers to um, sort of keep track of all of this. And so one example I liked was this one study where lucid dreamers had to practice these motor skills in their dreams to see if it really improved their skills when they were awake. And one of the skills was just to throw coins in a bucket uh, in their dream to see if this improved how well they could do it once they woke up. And so one lucid dreamer was throwing a coin in a bucket and then thought, wow, that, that last coin made a weird noise when it hit the bucket. So he goes and he looks inside the bucket and he realizes there's all this water in the bucket. Suddenly he looks at the ceiling and he realizes there's a leak. And then he goes, oh my gosh, my house has a leak. You know, I got a call, you know, a roof repair, whatever. So he completely yeah. forgot that he was dreaming and, you know, yeah. this was part. So it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to forget. I, but, I can understand that. <laughs> but yeah. some people are able to do it. So like I said, these are really um, 
interesting uh, studies. And again, we're really at this new frontier. But I think there's um, a sufficient number of researchers interested in these questions, um, including people at Rochester University, at MIT. Um, we just finished, we, because I'm also part of them, but these uh, weekly seminars talking about discussing various aspects of dream engineering from ethics to uh, oh, different wow. ways to try to study the dreaming brain uh, to how it can be used for health and so on. Um, you know, and at times there were 40, 50 researchers and graduate students taking part in these weekly uh, Zoom seminars. So something that never would have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic. So I, that's to me is one silver lining of the pandemic is that we got to bring a lot of people together on a weekly basis that otherwise would have been busy uh, you know, outside of their sure. homes. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Wow. That's great. That, that is incredible. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah truly. Uh, we're going to, I think this is going to turn into about a 12 part series carton. Yeah. The, yeah. Part two. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the yeah. fact that it's, it's ever changing, you know, and, and just right. like Tony said, you know, there is currently as, as we're talking, there is, there's breakthroughs going through. Um, and it's, it, I'm sure in your field, Tony, it's very exciting. Uh, it, it is. It's definitely very exciting to me. What is exciting. There's also, uh, many young dynamic researchers. And so uh, it used to be, you know, dream research used to be frowned upon and there are very few of us and, you know, the few of us in there are starting to get uh, up there in age. And so to have, you know, these young, vibrant students all excited um, and doing their PhDs in, in various areas, exploring various facets of dreams and neuroscience and lucid dreaming and uh, nightmare treatment and dream engineering. All of this to me is uh, very exciting because it'll help us um, understand this, this phenomena a lot better, uh, but also because there's all this dynamic energy being brought to the table and new ideas. You know, much of this dream engineering movement is actually, uh, you know, brought forth by these these young dynamic graduate students so i think it's um it's wonderful and bodes well for the future of you know serious scientific work uh onto the how and why of dreams yeah that is very cool that's great well um okay uh we are we blew through that hour that was yeah I mean, yeah we did. I just I found myself just sitting here just listening. This is this is very interesting stuff. Yeah, it's um, fascinating for sure. It is. Um, okay, so uh, we know what time it is now, Carden. Yes, we do. Correct. It is. It is that time. So now. are we? At, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you do it. I was go gonna ahead. say last time we we kind of didn't put Tony on the spot. We kind of let him I off. Know. We did. And, we and actually, was that episode twenty three? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it was. So, so Carden, uh, you know, every guest that we've had on thus far has uh, gone through the tradition. So, Tony, yeah, yeah. Are, are do you know the tradition, Tony? I, I think I was put through something the last time I came on your show. Um, again, it's part of my um, really adaptive forgetting that I don't remember what it was. Um, it's the it's the intro to the monkey moment question. Okay, and now, it is the invitation. Well, and maybe maybe Tony did it. Maybe I'm completely no, wrong. He, no, he didn't. Sorry, Tony. I, I'm a steel trap. I I know that you didn't. I remember. Um, 
because I, I didn't ask you because I was like, oh, I don't know, okay. but I think it'll be games. So typically what we do, uh, traditionally I should say, is that we ask our guests if they would to introduce the monkey moment by doing their best monkey imitation sound. Yeah, I did definitely not do that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. I, I was thinking uh, awkward pause. Okay, now, cat, cat, I would have remembered and done, yeah. you know, and, and maybe elephant. <laughs> yes. But, uh, <laughs> Hey, that <laughs> was great. That worked. That was great. I didn't say that. That actually scared monkey, me. You know, that's exactly right. <laughs> yes, uh, uh. that's going to give me nightmares. I didn't see it coming. It was like, bam! It was right there. Perfect. Yeah, that was that Perfect. was excellent. Spot on. That's great. <laughs> Very so the good. The monkey uh, question I wanted to ask. Um, you know, we asked you the eighth one last time. I I want to ask you about dreams. What is, are your reoccurring themes of your dreams? Uh, that's a good one. I have, uh, several, um, I have a recurrent dream character that, um, you know, it's been years. I haven't dreamt about this person that saddens me, but we have these wonderful conversations usually about dreams and they're usually in lucid dreams. That's more recurrent, a dream character. Um, flying dreams is a theme that, um, comes back not often enough, but that I try to uh, cultivate. Mm -hmm. Um, and on the more negative end of the spectrum, I would say the, uh, unprepared for an exam dream. In my case, usually mm -hmm. it takes the form of some government official showing up at work and telling me, you know, when you were in grade, whatever, 10, 11, we have no record of you completing this you know, oh. math exam or physics exam. <laughs> yeah. And so you need to take it tomorrow morning. And if you don't pass it, well, you know, everything you've done since uh, oh, no. is canceled. And I'm, and I'm like, that does, doesn't make sense. And <laughs> give me at least 24 hours. That's like, yeah. you know, that's like 40 years ago. Yeah. And I think I could probably pass it again today, but who knows, you know. And uh, so anyways, uh, that's one that I still have. And again, you know, earlier on, we we're talking about metaphors and so on. But when I start paying attention to when do these things come up, often they come up before I have to give uh, a talk or oh, you know, if I'm a guest speaker at a conference or. Yeah. Uh, and so it makes sense. But, you know, you're sort of doubting yourself and, and am I up to the task or, you know, the old imposter syndrome things related to that yes interesting okay so that's that's fascinating i'm gonna have to start paying way more attention to the dreams that i have and i'd love to do that same kind of correlation okay what's happening in my life and and what's happening in my dreams and, and try to see if i can find a, a corollary there yeah you're you're gonna start a dream diary right carton yeah 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 yeah, well, I mean, essentially, that's uh, as yeah, as yeah, Doctor exactly. Dream has told us. If you want to yep. uh, improve that, you need to start a dream diary. Yep. I don't. You know, I I know I dream. I just don't have great recollection. Period. I mean, I, I'd like to because I I think sometimes I have kind of interesting dreams, but it's just not there. It's just not there. That's true of uh, many people. And, yeah, and I, dreams already in, you know, for most people are very fragile memories and, and for some even more than, than others, they just have very little material to recall or work with. 
Well, it's, I guess it's one of those things that varies from person to person, like we talked about before. Um, you know, my, my son, for example, has excellent retention. And like I said, myself, I, I have nothing. So maybe, yeah. uh, Cardin, we should do this as a project. We'll each start a yeah, dream diary. Yep, we should. That would be interesting. <laughs> and, and give some updates. Get together once a, once a year and we compare notes. Yep, I think that's a great idea. I'm all for it. Well, I uh, I want to say, Tony, thank you again for for coming on and sharing this this wealth of knowledge that you're accumulating and have done so. Um, it is fascinating, and I I think, like I said earlier, the fact that it is an ongoing you know um, science is is interesting too because that means that there's you know there's new stuff happening all the time. So, um, but again, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your expertise. Yes. Yeah, and, and and if you start smoking suddenly next week or yeah. drinking a coarse beer, you know <laughs> I, I check out any funny remnants of smells in your bedroom there. Yeah, that, like, yeah. 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 Well, you know, okay. So when I, I was going to mention this one, I I read a a study a long time ago about aromatherapy, and um, Cardin, I'll ask you, do you know what aroma had the most positive effect on men? No. I couldn't even venture a guess. Uh, even to the point bacon. of being an aphrodisiac. Bacon. bacon. No. no. <laughs> Tony, do you have a guess? Uh, musk sweat. No. According to this study, it was vanilla. Oh, interesting. Vanilla is a almost like universally uh, positive accepted aroma for men. And it really surprised me because Tony's guess of musk, I would think almost something more primal, but no, yeah. vanilla, vanilla. And they, they use it a ton in marketing, you know? So I believe anyway, that. yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I love personally, <laughs> I love vanilla, but I, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. what's not to love Yeah, Apparently I'm not unique. Everybody does. Well, yeah. um, okay. So episode 24 23. <laughs> I think they should all be 23. <laughs> They'll be all be 23 from here right now. Episode 23, again. Again. Can't wait yep. for episode 23 next week. Yep. It's going to be great. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, so uh, we will wrap this up. Uh, Cardin and Tony, again, thank you so much for, for being on. And uh, episode uh, 23 and a half is now officially in the books. Cardin? In the books. I, I, I hope you feel better this week. Oh man, so do I. Yeah. Well, you, your wife, your your kind, lovely wife, I'm sure will take very good care of you. Yeah, I think she will. The kids are better. All right. Well, until next time, uh, I uh, I, will, I will say goodnight, Cardin. All right. Good night, Tony. And Tony. And sweet and, dreams and to you. Sweet, sweet dreams. dreams. <laughs>